Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines for over 25 years. Online at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, Sarah Light Waller discusses the Pulp magazine, Planet Stories, and the Romance of Space. The talk was recorded on Friday, August 5, 2022, at Pulp Fest 50 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Well, um, welcome to Planet Stories and the Romance of Space Opera. Um, I am Sarah Lightwaller. I will be your hostess for the next little bit. So this presentation is a companion piece to my Pulpster um, article called Letter Hackers and Superfans, the Story of the Visigraph. And uh, so I don't want to linger too much in this presentation on La Vizie, but um, it's an important part of Planet um, Stories, and we will touch on it a little bit. So here is a little bit of an outline of what we're going to be talking about tonight. Um, so we're going to start with the background and the basics. Um, and we're going to talk about the stories and the art. And we'll talk a little bit about the Visigraph. And then I want to talk about Planet's legacy. Because of all the pulp magazines, Planet has a really strong legacy past it. People are still wearing t-shirts with the black Amazon. There are people in this room that probably are. Um, and it's, uh, it's been in all sorts of public references, so that's kind of fun to look at as well. We've already talked a lot about Fiction House this weekend, but I just want to mention some basics again so that you all, so we make sure that when you have the test later, you all get it right. Um, <laughs> so the publisher of Planet Stories was Fiction House. Uh, it was founded by John B. Jack Kelly and John Glenster in 1921. So during its first decade as publishers, and again, I know all of you know this, but I'm really just going to go over it again. Um, they put out action stories, air stories, detective classics, and wings, and a whole bunch of other titles. Uh, in late 1932, they cut back on their titles, and they canceled 12 of their pulps, aces, action novels, action stories, air stories, detective book magazine, detective classics, fight stories, Frontier Stories, Lariat, Love Romances, and Northwest Stories, and also Wings. They planned to restart the line um, eventually, and uh, they relaunched it in 1934, and they did well with detective titles and some romance titles. And at the end of 1939, uh, they added their first pure science fiction magazine, which was Planet Stories. So this is kind of an overview. This is a little bit of what everybody knows about Planet Stories. It ran from nine, winter 1939 to summer 1955. Obviously, it was a U.S. pulp magazine. had 71 issues. Um, the fact that it ran to summer of 1955 means that it was a real late comer or late survivor into the pulp field. Um, and so to find pulp magazines in 55 was still unusual. But they were doing it, and you'll kind of get why if you don't already. Um, it was published by Love Romances Publishing, which is a subsidiary. And as we just heard, Planet Comics launched with it. Now, uh, Planet Stories was quarterly at the beginning, from winter of 39 to fall of 1950. It then went on to be bi-monthly from November 50 to summer of 54, and then was quarterly from fall of 1954 to summer of 55. If you're going to remember things about Planet Stories, the first thing you're going to remember are the covers which were love them or hate them, people really remember them. Uh, it was 
highlighting melodramatic interplanetary adventure stories and scientific romances of a type that was going out of style even at the time. And yet there were a lot of fans that were still interested in those older types. Science fiction was moving in a different direction as planet stories went on. And in the 50s, science fiction was moving into a much more psychological bent. And you began to see those different kind of stories in galaxy and then moving forward in time. And, but planet stories stayed with that older type. If you think of planet stories, one of the things that comes to mind immediately is that there was a lot of Lee Brackett stories and Ray Bradbury stories, a lot of the early Mars, or some of the Mars stories uh, that we think of with Bradbury with like the Million Year Picnic and um, you know Mars is Heaven, stories like that. Um, but it wasn't real Mars. It wasn't scientific Mars. It was a Burroughs type of Mars. It was a romantic one. And um, so another feature that was important about it was the visograph. And of all of the letters columns in all the magazines, I think that the visograph probably had one of the most robust um, fan bases and most interesting, in, um, and, but we'll get back to that as well. Planet Comics was, as we heard, it was published by Fiction House. It ran from January 40 to winter 53 for 73 issues. It was the first comic book dedicated entirely to science fiction and space opera in particular. And it was the foremost purveyor of good girl art in comic books of the period. So here we have the, the um, cover of Planet Stories and Planet Comics, both first issues. And if you look at the, um, the subtitles, you can see uh, how similar they are. Planet Stories was Strange Adventures on Other Worlds, the Universe of Future Centuries. And Planet Comics was Weird Adventures on Other Worlds, the Universe of the Future. So they were definitely tied together by concept as well as look, the colors, the basic design. I mean, it's, it's kind of amazing that they, they're so close. Obviously, it was a design choice, and I think a good one. They're really paired together. The good girl art is important. And again, the covers usually featured a beautiful, scantily clad space woman with long, bare legs being menaced by a frightful alien monster, just like on the covers of, of Planet Stories. But as was just mentioned, sometimes the reverse formula was used. So you had, and in the stories as well, the heroines were the ones who were defeating the space aliens and the villains, and they were getting little help from the, the males. And... Um, People have noted, cynic, cynical people have noted that, um, you know, this was, might have been a way to just have more pretty girls on the cover. But the truth is um, that we know that uh, they were getting the attention of female readers, and we know that by some of the letters to that one as well. So as we've heard, some of the early covers were drawn by um, Will Eisner. Again, they, Fiction House employed several female artists to work on the tales, and Lily Renee was one of them, Marcia Snyder, Ruth Atkinson, Frances Hopper. Um, and she did art for Mista on the, of the Moon, which was quite good. I haven't read a lot of Mista on the Moon in Planet Comics, but um, it's, it looks good from what I've read. So yes, there were plenty of male readers attracted to Planet Comics, but the, the space heroines were pretty co competent too. And it's nice to think that girls interested in space opera of the day, and there would have been some, had something to read. So that's kind of nice. So then we get into the, the authors of Planet Stories. Um, of all the, these are the most prolific writers. And so 
you know, one thinks about Lee Brackett and Ray Bradbury, and indeed they were the most prolific story writers for that magazine. But you can also see these are the others that had more than 10 stories. And um, it's interesting how many stories Bryce Walton had. I'm very much a fan of Bryce Walton's work. I don't know how many of you have read a lot of his work. Uh, this was more his really his early stuff, um, but he was in there a lot. And Nelson S. Bond, who I'm also very fond of. But you can see there was a good variety and strong strong voices for what was being written. Um, but you could say that Lee Brackett is most characteristic with all of her planetary romances and love and adventure stories of, on Mars and Venus. Um, she, had her, she first appeared in the winter 1940 issue, but it was not really until the post-war years that she did her really her most memorable stories, for example. And she, like her collaboration with Bradbury and Lorelei of the Red Mist, um, which was summer of 46, and three stories which featured her hero, Eric John Stark, which started with Queen of the Martian Catacombs in the summer of 1949. Um, so, but you again, as, you, as I said, uh, you have several of Ray Bradbury's really noted Martian chronicle stories, like The Million Year Picnic in summer of 46 and Mars is Heaven in fall of 48. And Frederick Brown was also an early contributor. Um, I don't know how many, you're probably all familiar with Star Mouse. His story, Star Mouse, is so delightful from spring of 42, and then the sequel, which was Mitke Rides Again in November of 1950. So then we have um, other notable writers with less than 10 stories. I discovered Basil Wells. He's not on this particular list, but I discovered Basil Wells in reading Planet Stories and researching him. I'd never heard of him. His stories are quite good. I was very excited to find him. Um, another one that would not make the list because there was only one story published by this person named M.E. Councilman. There was a story called The Conquistadors Come. And I doubt any of you have read it unless you've read all of Planet Stories. But it's a fascinating type of space opera where you have um, a bunch of um, planet-hopping heroes looking for whatever they're exploring. And they find a whole society that are beauty worshipers, but they'd all been irradiated, so they're all horribly disfigured. And these just regular human being fit space heroes show up, and these crazy and sick inhabitants of the planet start worshiping them, which ends up being really bad for everybody. It's a very interesting story. Um, so also not on this particular list, there were many stories by Sam Moskowitz um, and um, just a whole lot of, of, if you're not a fan of space opera, they're just things you might not ever pick up. But they're in there, and they're just some really good stuff. It's, it's just really good, good things between those covers. Um, Philip K. Dick's first published work it appears in Planet Stories in 1952 in July, and it's called Beyond Lies the Wub. I don't know if any of you, have any of you ever read it? Yeah, okay, so you know this. It's, it's kind of, it has that Philip K. Dick chill to it, a little creepiness, but it's, um, it's kind of an interesting little story. It's uh, about an, a sentience that, that hops bodies, and it's really casual, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, and it ends up hopping into other bodies, but it's very Philip K. Dick in that. So kind of an interesting little story there. 
So here are some other stories that you've probably read, and, and I mentioned most of them. I didn't mention War Gods of the Void yet, uh, the Henry Cutner story, and uh, that's, of course, really a fun one. I happen to love the story Garrigan's Bems. I love that story, and, and it's one of the few times we see um, Ed Cartier's work in Planet Stories, and he just did a, a marvelous job with that one. And there's the Basil Wells story, the first of two, Quest of Fig. And Philip K. Dick's John P. Crow, which is pretty well known. And um, I put up Carry Me Home, which is a Cutner and Moore story, because I happen to really like it. I know it may not be the most famous one that he's ever written, but I think it's a really good one, so I wanted to note it. Then we get to the cover artists. And the cover art, of course, is really important to Planet Stories. Um, and if you want the count, Alan Anderson wins the award as having by far the most covers, um, followed by Kelly Freese, and then um, Harry Lemon Parkhurst was also had seven, so he was the third. Uh, but we and we're going to get back to the other variety of of artists in a minute. So over the next couple of pages, I just want to show you um, a variety of artists. They did, in many cases, they did more than one cover, but in some cases, like the Bach cover that you see, um, the second from the left, he only did one. Um, the Leidenfrost did two, and I found an interesting reference to the Leidenfrost covers, um, which I cannot find a confirmation for. But it, in one of the letters columns, they were talking about Leidenfrost um, Senior, or Leidenfrost Pair, and, and he, his work was better. Now, I could find no reference to there being a son and father Leidenfrost group, and I don't know if any of you have ever heard of I only heard of the one Leidenfrost. Uh, but I really like his two covers. The cover of the reprint that someone just won was one of his. Um, but I think Alan Anderson's covers are going to be the most recognizable of all of these. Um, let's see. Um, and okay, so the trend was usually some girl in a bikini bathing suit or gown being menaced by some kind of monster, and there's a space hero somewhere around there. That was generally the theme, and people explored it in different ways. Um, and so... Whether you love these covers or hate them, they became so recognizable that they've stayed with us ever since, one way or the other. So here's some more. You see um, Drake and the, the one Finley cover, the, the Frank R. Paul cover, and the Norman Saunders. And so as a quote for chat, from Chad Oliver, who was one of the super fans in the Visigraph, and I'll get back to him in a little bit, but as, and to quote him, the cover, otherwise known as Haul Out the Ray, the Ray Gats, Joe, the monsters are after your sweetie again. So even in the Visigraph, people were referring to the, the commonality of the poor covers are always maligned, but people loved them anyway. So here we have uh, the Jerome Rosen, one of the Jerome Rosen covers, the George Gross, the Parkhurst, one of the Parkhurst, and the, the Martin cover. Um, I have a quote from Lee Brackett, also from the letter columns. And she's referring to the Rosen cover, and she said, I have just procured the new, ver the new issue of Planet, and I'm still dro drooling over the cover. Rosen does a beautiful work, even if for some mystic reason the picture seldom has anything to do with the text. 
Oh, well, who cares? His sense of form and color is right up there with the best. And for my money, he does the best pulp covers on the stands. And she said that in uh, the uh, Winter 43 issue. So we know that even then, and this is still going on, artists are um, drawing whatever the heck they want sometimes. And, or they're, you know, they're painting it first and it doesn't fit. And, um, but who cares because it's pretty. And it's, it's, you know, keeps you, keeps you interested. Now, the interior art um, got worse and worse. It started out being having some really nice pieces, like this Lady Frost um, double double spread here, and so that was really a winner. And he did a couple of pieces in there that were very nice. Uh, but as we go, and and here are some others that were pretty nice, that some Paul work and some Doolin work. But as we go on, the interior art just gets to be really meh which is too bad. So they were putting all their money into the covers and just saying, well, you know, the interior is, is okay. Um, but what we did have uh, was Guy Gifford's Ringer family cartoons. They were very popular. And he was a really fun letter writer, too. He has a lot of interesting things to say. I don't know how many of you have seen the, um, the Ringer family cartoons before, other than in Planet or ever. They're quite amusing. And his art was quite good. <coughs> so I recommend them. They're very delightful. And, and as you can see, the pen and ink work is really quite good. Then we get to the Visigraph. And to quote Robert Silverberg, the Visigraph's function is to serve as a hall of fame for the disappearing letter hackers who see print without saying anything sensible or important and who are still an integral part of fandom. And it makes me, as I said in my article in the, in the Pulpster, it makes me wonder um, if we could still do a forum anything like this. We could try, but the people were so irre irreverent in it, and they had such a good time. I think we would be have a bit of stricture about what we could and couldn't say today. Um, there's a quote from Guy Gifford who said, it's rather hard for a writer professional to swing into the free and easy, don't give a damn style of these letter hacks. Letter hacking is a business all of its own. Someday it will be featured in the front of the mags. And he said that in uh, winter of 1943. And I too have noted that the professionals who write in when Lee Brackett writes in or some of the other writers, except for Asimov, he had his own thing going on. Um, but they have a little more trouble becoming just, ha just swinging from the hip with their letters. So it's, it's kind of interesting. I've, I've noticed that as well. Asimov has an interesting story. In the beginning of the Visigraph, there was either a typo with his name or he deliberately put his name as Ascension. And there was this, so people started calling him Isaac Ascension and he hated it and had all, there was this huge back and forth and people wouldn't let it go. And so he got really mad and there were these letters back and forth. It's quite amusing about that. So the Visigraph was really social media of its day. Um, and people really talked about getting the magazine, and the first thing they would do is read the letters. And it's been, it was noted um, many times. The other thing people were talking about was what was the nature of science fiction. They were talking also about the stories that they liked and didn't like, of course, and the covers. But the definition of science fiction, it was highly debated, because here we are looking at... Um, 
you know, kind of a retro magazine even at the time. And they were saying, well, we like this, but, um, you know, what's going on with this, you know, Bradbury fellow and written in by a, a housewife who was talking about, um, one talking about how she passed the issue around and all the family members liked different stories, but she wanted to report what everybody liked. That was a big deal. There was another gal who wrote in who took um, Bradbury to task, and I found it really interesting because she had the same thing to say about Bradbury that I felt, but I, was never, I never wanted to say it because everybody loves Bradbury so much, and I just did not want to say that out loud. And I've written about Bradbury and, um, for articles on, on, their web, on the Pulp Fest website. But she said that she felt that Bradbury didn't like, didn't have enough faith in humanity, that his stories had this kind of downer, <laughs> under-the-surface thing to them. And she went on about this, and she felt this was not good, and, and people shouldn't write like this, and... Um, had quite a long letter about it, and I thought, well, darn, you know, I happen to agree with her, which is weird agreeing with somebody who's probably long dead, or at least, you know, semi-long dead. Here, here's something else that Lee Brackett said. She said, Dear Editor, as usual, I turned immediately to the Visigraph and devoured avidly all comments concerning one L. Brackett, and I am thereby impelled, if I may, to say a couple of things. First of all, my heartfelt thanks to all you guys and gals who write in with such nice comments. Whenever I hit a low spot in my work, I think of you and decided maybe I have a chance after all. There's, no, there's nothing like a little praise to make a writer work, their, work his head off, and believe me, I appreciate it. So that was from Winter 43. You know, you don't think about someone like Lee Brackett needing a pat on the back, ever. But there you go. You know, she's just a regular person, and um, she liked that. The uh, letter hackers often had, um, they had... Um, Nom de guerre, I guess, <laughs> pen names. Uh, Milt Lesser was writing in before he was really writing. And Chad Oliver was, too. Chad was probably one of the biggest super fans. And these were kind of what they were calling themselves. And um, other well-known appearances all the time. Robert Silverberg and Damon Knight and Hank Kuttner and Lee Brackett. Marion Zimmer Bradley was writing in toward the end. Guy Gifford wrote all the time, and, um, and as, as a Gazimov, and, and many others, not to mention regular people that you, whose name you don't know. So then we get to the Planet Story legacy, um, and this is basically how, how it comes down to us. Um, there were foreign reprints. Uh, there was Tops in Science Fiction, which we just mentioned. Uh, the Best of Planet Stories, number one, and the Illustrated Stark, which is much more recent, and then... We're going to talk about some pulp, uh, pop culture references to Planet Stories. So it was reprinted in the UK by Pemberton. There were 12 numbered, undated, truncated, and initially irregular issues between March 50 and September 54. And then there were the Canadian reprints. Um, there were 12 issues. They were identical to the US issues, and they went from fall 1948 to March 51. And then there's Tops in Science Fiction, which was two issues. Um, the first issue was Spring of 53, and it included Citadel of Lost Ships by Lee Brackett, The Last Martian by Ray Van Houten, Castaways of Eros by Nelson S. Bond, The First Man on the Moon by Alfred Koppel, Task to Lahari by Ross Rock Rockland, The Millionaire Picnic by Ray Bradbury, 
um, The Rocketeers Have Shaggy Ears by Keith Bennett and The Black Friar of the Flame by Isaac Asimov. You all are familiar with The Rocketeers of Shaggy Ears? Its story? I'll talk about it in a minute for those who aren't. Um, the second issue is, um, was from Fall of 53, which included Lorelei of the Red Mist by Lee Brackett and um, Ray Bradbury, and The Gods Laughed by Frederick Brown, Grifter's Asteroid by H.L. Gold, under the Harold C. Fossey name, The Sword of Johnny Damocles by Hugh Fraser Parker, and Saboteur of Space by Robert Abernathy. And then we have The Best of Planet Stories number one from 1975, which included, um, it had a good introduction by Lee Brackett, actually, and then Lorelei of the Red Mist, The Star Mouse, which is Mitke number one, Return of a Legend by Raymond, G, Raymond Z. Gallum, Quest of Fig by Basil Wells, The Rocketeers mm -hmm. Have Shaggy Ears, and The Diversifall by Ross Rocklin, and Duel on Cerdis by Powell Anderson. So it's a good book, the reproduction, or that reprint. And then I don't know how many of you have seen this, but the illustrated Stark was that the three books were put out again in 2019, and you can see that they, they kind of updated the cover but used the same, for, especially for the Black Amazon. The other two books are not quite as um, dedicated in looking like the original so much, but they're close, and you can see. Uh, this was put out by Sersova Publishing, along with Star 2. So it's an all-new, fully illustrated 70th anniversary edition of Lee Brackett's um, Eric John Stark trilogy. Uh, and it, so it's the Queen of the Martian Catacombs, the Enchantress of Venus, the Black Amazon of Mars, and at, together as the completed illustrated Stark. And again, it came out in 2019 um, over a period of months. So then we get into some pop culture references. Um, that is actually my calendar over there on the right. So we still see plenty of planet stories in that. And I think Futurama is pretty clearly referencing planet stories with their Planet Express logo. And of course, all of Futurama, that the cartoon is really, it's just retro space opera references all over the place. So, and then, um, this is kind of a funny one. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Earth Girls Are Easy from 1988, but in the opening credits, those are two stills, and they're very clearly the Black Amazon and Mars. There's other things. The opening credits are a complete homage to pulp imagery, but this one is just really very specific. Uh, I don't have slides for the next two, but I'm going to talk about them. I have a... Um, it, can't, it was a late edition, so I, if you want to come up and see it, I have a piece of paper. But in the fall of 1950 um, Planet Stories, there's an ad. It's actually a review, but it's kind of also serving as an ad by um, Forrest Ackerman uh, about uh, Rocket Ship XM, the movie, and he's talking about that. But he, the, um, the, the female star of the movie is holding um, an issue. She's like she's reading an issue of Planet Stories. It's the spring 1950 issue, the issue with the Rocketeers have shaggy ears. And so um, some press, and they, you know, they just put it in the magazine. So the press was looking at Planet Stories even then because of the fun covers. So if anyone wants to read that, I've got that here. And then um, another kind of weird reference, I think... And again, it's a supposition. Um, 
the movie The Secret Life of Walter Mitty that with Danny Kaye from the 40s. It's my opinion that Pierce Publishing is supposed to be a reference to Fiction House. So it's not a Planet Stories reference, it's a Fiction House. Because if you remember the movie, he goes in and there's all these different covers of different types of pulps. And I was thinking, what other pulp house was that varied that had everything? You know, maybe, maybe Street and Smith, but I think Fiction House was more broad. So I think that was a subtle reference to Fiction House in that movie. So it's, it's not really Planet Stories legacy, but it is Fiction House legacy. So I feel like I went through that really fast. I don't know what time it is, but. Oh dear. Well then we can, we can chat about it. I, I was afraid I was gonna go too fast. One thing I can talk about though, um, because you were talking about the other authors that were in um, Planet. I have a list of everybody. So um, it would be actually fun to talk with you guys about who you think was in there, who you've read, and, and who you liked in Planet Stories. Because um, there just were a bunch of great stories in there. So um, before I open it up to questions, I'm going to open up to opinions. What have you read in Planet that you that was really memorable that you guys liked? Lee Bracker is probably the reason I started reading her was the reason I probably started coming to Paul. Cool. What was your favorite of her stories? Well, the John Stark books, um, the short stories, the stories. The later books, I I know she spoke, she wrote them, but they're a little political, or you know, there's a lot about um, the three books. It was the three books she did later. Um, and, and I don't know from, I, maybe somebody here knows, did she write them or did, did her husband? Which ones? Um, the, the three novels she did, the, what is it, The Wolves of Skate, The Hounds of Skate, and the other two. Was Skate. one of the Rhiannon? The no, these were separate. These were the, the later, the, the Skate book came out in the 70s, and yes, of course she wrote them. Oh, she did? In fact, she did. Was, okay. Well, her husband, Debbie, was first, but one all came out. But maybe this is her big return to the field. Mm. Uh, we so who else had something they really loved in Planet Stories? Nelson Vaughn was a favorite of mine. Mine too. What were some of the Vaughn stories that you remember? Uh, I should have written down the titles. I just generally like him. And I will generally read what he has. Yeah, I'm not, like, I don't have my whole list of, I have the list of the authors, but not all of what they wrote. And I can tell you that in, in Bard, like Bryce Walton, I'm, I'm writing a book about him, actually, in his dystopian work. And everything in Planet Stories is a bit early for his dystopian stuff. He has some good stuff, but it's a little bit space opera for, for what I'm really focusing on with him. So I like it. I think the green dream is in there, and that's a really creepy kind of story. Um, he likes psychological stories. Yes? So given that, say, Bradbury's style is quite different from typical sort of space opera. Yeah. What the folks in the letters column say about Bradbury and contrasting? They like million your picnic as much as we do now, for example. How did they react to it at the time? It was on and off. Some liked it. Some had trouble with it. Um, I wish I had an, I wish I had my laptop here to share with you some of the comments because some of them are in my Pulpster article a little bit, but I think they liked it. People were having, 
The serious letter writers, the polite letter writers, were writing and going, um, thank you, editor, you know, that was a smashing issue, and these are my favorites. Um, and then there were the letter writing contests. I didn't mention that, but I will right now. And so the letter hackers would get in there, and whoever wrote the best letters for the month, and everyone would vote on them, including Bradbury, including Asimov, and they'd win art from the issue. So everyone was trying to win the art. And I, I wonder how much has ended up in collections because of people winning art, the fans. I think they generally really liked him. They certainly liked Lee Brackett, but they would comment if they didn't like something. Um, and I, I don't recall anybody really hating The Million Year Picnic or you know, Mars is Heaven or any of those stories. But sometimes they, they took him to task like anybody. I can't remember anything specific that they hated him for. Yes? Yeah, it's been a while. I've read them all, and I read the letters. Mm -hmm. And it's been a while, but my impression was there was a fair amount of people who didn't like Bradbury at all. That woman that you mentioned earlier, she was far from a woman. And I think they all, I think the ones that didn't like him all had the same reason as her. Mm -hmm. They saw him as too dark. Well, he doesn't seem to love humanity. I mean, when it comes right down to it, I mean, and if anybody loves Bradbury, I don't want to offend them, but it seems like it was always about the good old days. And considering the way he was brought up and, and his, you know, his history with magic and circuses and, and he had a wonderful childhood. And then I think adulthood kind of disappointed him a little bit. He saw the way the world was going and it, it just was a little disappointing and he was a bit of a downer sometimes. Well, I can see that, but I kind of got into false, like I started with science fiction was contemporary to me. Yeah. And then went back. And I never was a big Bradbury fan. But when I read through you know, the complete Round of Planet stories, even though I had previously been a Bradbury fan, there was no doubt that him and Brackett were up here compared to most of the writers. Well, they were. Y yeah, they were. And I think that was, but they wrote more. They had more of a sample, too, yeah. to be fair. A lot of people don't realize that um, Nelson Brown and Nelson Bond actually insisted he, he began his career writing pulp sports stories for fiction films. I didn't know that. And he wrote basketball, football, and baseball. I don't know if he wrote hockey. I can't remember that. But I don't like hockey and stories, so I don't read it. But um, uh, Bond uh, wrote a lot of sports stories. My book, uh, called Baseball and Football, has him in there. And the thing is, in Fiction House, he's almost nothing but reprints in the early 50s. And they you know, sports, they had three remaining sports magazines, two on football and one on baseball. And Bond had a lot of stories in those reprints. And he demanded that his name be, be taken off the stories and that a pen name be used, that our John Starr or some huh. kind of Fiction House pen name. He would not let, he, as far as I know, I, I'm not sure it happened every time. He would not let his, he was such a famous fantasy writer, mm -hmm. he did not want people to know he wrote sports stories. Well, it's uh, fair. Bond had uh, about 260 pulp appearances, and most of his sports stories are under his name. He no, the original stories, but not the reprints. 
what I'm trying to say. He wrote, he wrote uh, sports stories under Bob's name, under his own name, in the late 30s and early 40s. But once he became famous as a fantasy writer, he did not want his name on the reprints of his sports stories. And I've got all the magazines. What does the part of the Well, I don't know, but I've got every magazine that Fiction has published, and <laughs> they did not run his name. They ran independent names. Well, I disagree with you. On you, Nelson bought and saw the original story files, and mm -hmm. it doesn't reflect that information. No, but I've got the magazines, and he did not, his, his stories did not appear under his name. Well, I disagree about that. Well, we can't disagree, it's a fact. I've seen his original stories. All right, but no, no arguments during my presentation. You'll have to wait. Sir, you part, it's a question and a comment, brother, and I don't have this info in my head. What year was the Million Year Picnic published? 1946. Yeah. Now, let's not forget what happened. August 7, 1945, the world changed, and I think Bradbury did get darker. I'm a big fan of astounding, but also feel the work, but the stories of astounding for those four were almost all about apocalyptic stuff. Yeah. Because of August 7, 1945, the first atomic bomb dropped. Yeah, yeah. And I, a lot of me. Well, again. Again, referring back to the Rocketeers of Shaggy Years, which was a, a post-war story that, and a very famous one. And um, it's, it's very gritty and it's very realistic and it was written, it's a one-off story by an author, I don't think he ever wrote anything else again, but he came back from the war and he wrote this um, science fiction piece very clearly written by a veteran who'd seen it and put it in there and it becomes a very famous story in military genre science fiction. Is Million Year Picnic dark? Do people feel like it's dark or is it more, I don't know. Oh, I don't, I don't think it's dark. That, I, don't think that, I don't think that story is particularly dark. Mars is Heaven is not a happy-go-lucky story though. You know, and he's got um, so many of his Mars stories. Not all of them were in planet stories, but um, there's one about, I forget the name of it, there's a telepathic alien that humans go to Mars and there's like one telepathic and it's, it will change shape to whatever your consciousness wants. And humans are so outrageous that they make this thing change shape. They don't do it consciously until the thing dies. And so, you know, there's just a whole lot of, I mean, bless Bradbury's heart. He was a wonderful writer and he brought us a lot. But he, he did have his, his, those feelings on his sleeve and we get to see them you know and um and although he was writing romantic mars i think lee brackett may exemplify more the um the romantic in the other sense of mars henry cutner has some good stories in planet hmm. just, uh, just a comment about the legacy of planet stories i think just, just keep in mind that lee brackett near the end of her life more than 20 years after the and the planet stories wrote the first draft of the Empire Yes, she did. Um, and that was at the very end of her life, too. Um, the Empire Strikes Back. I've read part of it. I think it would have made a really good movie had they left it, but it was a bit old for apparently what they wanted. I still think it would have made a good movie, though. There yeah. Was still a lot of they used. Yeah, they, they filtered it. They still gave her credit yeah. on the screenplay, although you know, a lot of it was changed. Right. I, I think it would have been good. I mean, it had that pulpy action to it. Empire Strikes Back has one scene in there where they want 
cover of Planet Trail. Even my son told me. Well, the one where she's on the boat or whatever, she's in that France. That was the that was the third movie, not the second. Mm-hmm. It does. Well, I'm sure it was influenced by it. <laughs> so, if I have a little more time yet, yeah, it's like the Visegrad up there. This is why I wanted to do it because that is that's a piece of Planet Stories. Yes. Um, from my own, and it's my own editorial background, very hard to make make uh, letter columns. And when I was working for Amazing Stories, when I was editing Weird Tale, it was very hard to, to get that kind of feel in the letter columns, complete with you no know, interaction between the editorial yeah. and the letter column all work. And this, it was like, uh, you just couldn't get the fans to do it. The, the whole tradition of writing into magazines it had pretty well died out. And just you could not get enough letters. Well, I think you could probably do it now with social media, but could you do it with the same kind of irreverence and fun? So we're trying to do this as late as about 2007, and it already was social media, but basically the fans just no longer have the tradition of writing in the magazines. It's too bad. Well, all of us would, right? Everyone in this room, we could restart the Visigraph right here. You see, I brought up a tangible point there. I don't... I don't remember seeing as many house pseudonyms in the planet as there were in other fiction houses. It, it doesn't seem like there were. We did see a couple with um, Kuttner and Moore, you know, the C.L. Liddell name, and um, so we did see a few. That's their, that's their Yeah, oh, you mean house pseudonyms. Yeah, I don't... Like John Starr's. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there were that many. It appears the people who wrote, wrote. You know, they, they just published under their names. Mm. In fact, since you read all these letters, this is just awesome. So, did, did, so Bradley was already um, getting screenplay credits in 1945, right. 1945. Right. And Byron Jones, and then the big sweep. Right, right. No, she was very humble. I never saw that. But other people... And, and I didn't see people, I, maybe it was the editors who was culling things, because I didn't see a lot of outside references to other work people had done. It, I think they were, the, the editors, and sometimes like Peacock was writing for Planet um, as well, and people would get after him. Um, yeah, you see, you're laughing, you know. Um, they were hard on the editors, and the editors just kicked back too. And, and the, there was a, I have it in the the Pulpster article. There's a comment about um, there's a comment about fin about the covers. There constantly people were making fun of the covers, and so the editor wrote in once. I think it was Peacock who was writing in and said, "But we're going to give you a Finley cover this time." So basically, shut up. He wasn't quite that rude, but it's like, come on, what more do you want? But the consistency of the covers and the garishness really meant something. It actually ended up being a fantastic marketing ploy. I mean, they didn't maybe plan it that way, but it end, that's what it ended up. And that's why we remember Planet Stories by these, these really garish covers. Also, I do not have a reference to this, so I'm not sure, but I think that in, um, in Frederick Brown's What Mad Planet, he is describing in, in the alternate world... 
the, the magazines are not science fiction, they're science fact. They're like adventure stories, all the, the bug-eyed monsters and stuff. He describes a cover that really looks, sounds like one of a particular Planet Story cover. And I'm not sure, I haven't checked the dates to make sure that the timing is right, but it really sounds like a, you know what I'm talking about? There's No, I have to look back and check. There's one cover that has a girl turning away, it's got blue colors on it, and it's um, there's a bug-eyed monster and a hero, and but definitely the woman is turning away from the, the cover, they're like on a road. And it's that one, and it's such a specific cover, and it's so different in a way than the others that it just, to have someone else describe that just says he was talking about that cover. But then again, in What Mad Universe, it's kind of a Planet Stories universe that he goes into, so it kind of fits. So that's another legacy bit, really. Although it's contemporary, so it's not really a legacy. That's why I didn't... What? It's kind of like Ready Player One. Yeah, yeah. So today we have all these you know, these pop culture references with movies and, and cross-references like in movies and TV shows and stuff, I think they had it too. I think they just had it between letters, between movies, between um, different of the pulp com, um, magazines and the comics. And um, it was, the first fans were very vibrant and the secondary fans. And, um, they, and I remember the Marion Zimmer Bradley letter I'm thinking of was fairly late in the run. And you know she was very young when she wrote it. I mean, she was probably 10 years away from the, um, well, no, that, no, not her. She, she was still a, a bit away, I think, from really doing a lot of publishing. And it's interesting to hear these young voices. And Chad Oliver, okay, he hadn't published anything yet. And that is what makes him so interesting. He was a real irreverent letter hacker. People loved him and hated him. And you know, he wrote a lot of letters and um, it's just fun to see him because he went on to be such a notable voice, you know, and in anthropological science fiction. Thank you. You've been listening to a Pulp Event podcast brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines for over 25 years. Please visit us online at the pulp. Dot net. Also, look for the PulpNet on Facebook and on Twitter. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. This Pulp Event Podcast is copyright 2022 by William P. Lampkin, all rights reserved.